This episode of Two True Freaks is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades.com offers 37% off all major publishers. InStockTrades.com offers free shipping for orders over $50. Most orders are shipped within 48 hours, and there are thousands of titles currently in stock. That's InStockTrades.com. And be sure to tell them Two True Freaks sent you. Two True Freaks reaches thousands of listeners each and every month. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please stay tuned after this show for details. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Michael Bailey and Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to Comics Monthly Monday number 22. And I went to the pantry today and there was no more comics Scott Gardner in the can. So... I have brought in an, another comics genius and expert, Mr. Michael Bailey, to wow. be sitting in for Scott Gardner. <laughs> I, I've How do you like been... that? Live up to that now. <laughs> I was about to say, no pressure. <laughs> not, only do you, not only do you have to fill in for Scott, you're a genius. Go with that. <laughs> no, I appreciate coming on. I, uh, I, I uh, miss Scott, but it's, it's kind of neat that uh, we're going to get to talk about the series that we're going to talk about today because we found out... I think it was one of our first conversations that we both realized we liked uh, this series. Uh, and, and you seemed really surprised that I knew what it was. I'm surprised when anybody knows what comics, you know, has read the, the comics. I, you know, the thing is, I think a lot of the comics I read are, like, read by a lot of the people that a lot of the people who listen to our show hate. You know, the people who... <laughs> You know, literally read hate comics in the 90s and were like, oh, comics are good now, you know? Look, there's no stupid superheroes in this, you know? <laughs> I read a lot of that stuff. But at the same time, I've never thought... I, I don't know. I've never been like, well, well, you know, I got over superheroes, you know, once I got out of short pants or whatever because, A, I didn't, <laughs> and B, I just... I don't understand that. I don't understand that whole thing of like I have to forego this because I have this and 
Well, that's the that's something I was actually going to bring up, but now that you brought it up, now it's 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 good a time to any just talk about it. Is that is one of my problems uh, with independent comic fans or fans of independent comics? I guess would be a better way to say that in general. Uh-huh. Is that to like this, they have to hate that? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it feeds off of the creators that produce those comics because they're very much the same way. You and Scott love Destroy. Yeah. And I can never really get behind Destroy after reading that it was Scott McCloud trying to purge all of the superhero-ness out of himself so he could move on to something Yeah, and, and you know else. what's funny is when I read that, I took it as a celebration of that. Yeah. You no. know, yeah, that's the thing. But it, no, but it was him literally doing the dumbest superhero supervillain fight ever. And while I appreciate it, because I do, I have read it. Uh, me, me and my friend Ryan sat in this comic book shop called Oxford Comics. Uh, it, there was a bookstore in Atlanta called Oxford Books, and in the middle of it, they had a comic shop that had a spiral metal staircase that went up to where the independent books were. Oh. It was a oh. really cool little shop. Uh, and we went up there, and he found Destroy, and I think he bought it that day. And we sat there and read it, and I was like, this is kind of funny. But then I read an interview with Scott McCloud later. He's like, yeah, I did that to get all that out of my system. And if you do that because you don't want, you want to move on to another genre and you don't want the influences of the superheroes kind of creeping in, yeah, that's one thing. I mean, that's just you know, okay, I'm going to get it all out here, so I can move on to this, and it can be different, and and all that. But if you're you're saying it because I'm going to get rid of all that because it's stupid, so I can move on to something real, you know, the superhero genre gets kicked in the teeth a lot. Uh, even now, even now, even in the '80s, even in the I 90s, don't understand that when it's always been top dog in comics, and I think. I think that's the problem is that people who want to produce something other than superheroes can't because, you know, the the big boys want to want to, you know, only want to push Superman and Batman and the X-Men and right. Spider-Man and all that. I think there's a lot of resentment there. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from. But, you know, being a fan of superheroes, especially as I was in the the early 90s, you know, all the when Sandman hit big, and suddenly it was acceptable to read comics again for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially after Dark Knight, Watchmen, and then Sandman, and, it, you know, it all kind of It was only because stuff. the press was saying it. The press had finally something to write about comics, <laughs> yeah. and they, yeah. And, and, and every write you know, 90% of the writers are hacks, so they're going to start out their story with, Boy, you thought comic books were just guys in tights, but it's not like that anymore. You know, how many articles did you read, like, or news reports did you see like that in the 90s, you know? And they would always have Bam, Biff, Pow, and, and yeah. I swear to God, that has not gone away, because I read a, a blog entry on the Wall Street Journal that started off with that, about doing some kind of report on the ongoing litigation between Warner Brothers and the Seagulls. Yeah, and they, and it probably started out, holy blank, yeah, comma, and it's just blank. Like, really? Really? We, we haven't moved past 1986. No, well, because, yeah, it's written for people, it's written for the, the masses, and it's almost off a template, you know? That's all, that's, that's almost all they're gonna write about comics, is, you know, somebody's doing, 
you know, somebody's doing something different and better, you know, or, or, you know, somebody's coming up with something that's actually putting some, you know, I mean, there was, I, I think, I know there's a lot of people who haven't read Mouse just because they were just so turned off by all the people fawning over Spiegelman and, you know, and, and that, that, that comic. It was, it was a very good comic. I don't think it was a, you know, I don't think amongst, I think it was, I mean, I don't want to say that it didn't deserve praise, but I mean, there were a lot of very good comics around at that time, and that was the one that for some reason had enough, you know, it was about the Holocaust, so it had a little more... It was his his family story as well. Right, and and it makes a better story to write about in a paper, something, you know, something like that, and uh, so, and... So it got a, a lot of pre- and I think a lot of people were just like, "Oh, this is so pretentious!" And why, you know, that's all we're here, mouse, mouse, mouse. You know, come on, you know, something really good's happening in Superman right now, and and uh, you know, when Superman gets press, it's when it, you know he reaches a round number anniversary or he dies, <laughs> or he gets engaged. Those were the yeah. two. Those were the two that I opened up the morning call, which was the paper in Allentown. And on in the Saturday paper, it went from your standard like fold in half paper. There's a term for that. I don't know what it's called. Uh, to a tabloid edition style, mm-hmm. and always on that first inside page, there would be some kind of entertainment news. And in 1990, I opened it up. Superman's getting engaged. And in 1992, I opened it up. Superman's going to die. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know what that says about the public's consciousness in regards to getting married. But uh, no, but I, but I, but I, it's like I was going to college and we'd be hanging out with a bunch of different people. And they'd be like, I'd be like, well, I read comics. And they're like, you read comics? I'm like, yeah, I read Superman and I read Batman. And they're like, oh, we read Sandman and books of magic. Like, like that, like like that is the end all be all of comic book existence. And it just, I've gotten such a chip on my shoulder about that. Mainly because in all honesty, I have been up until it was up until just a couple years ago. I was a very solitary comic book fan. Growing up, I didn't have a Walt Hadley, right, right, to kind of usher me through, you know, that that first hurdle. I didn't have like a really good friend that was into the same comics that I was. I would find people that were into comics, but I read Superman, and let me tell you, when you read Superman in '89 and '90 and '91 before he died, you might as well have been wearing a dress. Yeah. To quote yep. Christian Slater from Heather. Oh, trust me, Scott and I weren't getting laid in that time period either. Let me tell you, <laughs> and there was just no chance. And everybody, you know, they're like, "Well, you know, I'm reading Spider-Man, or I'm reading X-Men, or I'm reading New Mutants," and then Image hit, and that was the thing to be into. And mm-hmm. it's like I try to get into that stuff, but it never really grabbed me. I guess as it grabbed them. And now all of those guys. I'm sure have those comics in their closet. They run into somebody who still reads comics and it's like, well, I got this spawn number one. Do you think that's worth any money? Oh, they all think it's, they're all sitting at their garage with their 1997 price guides (laughs) telling you this, I'm telling you this box is worth $800. If you go and sell these individuals, there's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of variant covers and stuff too. (laughs) Real good stuff. I was watching, uh, what is that show? Pawn stars on the history. Uh huh. And he, this guy brought in a box of comics, and it was a bunch of shit from the 90s. It was a short yeah. box full of comics. 
and they paid that guy $150 for the short box. Yeah, well, they got a TV budget for that kind of shit. Good luck, like, you can... Yeah, that's every rummage sale, man. And I'm like, <laughs> why don't you call in, like, us to be, like, the experts? Because they always mm-hmm. call in experts to come appraise something. And I really want to just, like, George Lucas us into that, where we're looking over, like, the same type of comics going, I don't know, man, these are, like, 50-cent bugs. It'll yeah. it'll only take 10 seconds to explain to those guys why those comics are shit, too, because they'd understand the concept of them. you say, <laughs> this is when everybody went nuts and thought comics were, uh, you know, something to put in a fucking strong box and invest in (laughs) so they bought 15 copies of each and they were all pumping out as many titles as they could so as soon as they got popular they got you know exponentially crappier too because they were just churning them out and everybody ended up with yeah five long boxes full of all the same issues because they bought five copies of them because they were number one and it, number one's going to be worth so much money someday. And there were uh, comics that were actually doing that. And then it's yeah. the humper theory. I'll bring that up back from the early days. The, the, <laughs> the humpers get on it and they just, you know, ruin it. So now there's just a million basements filled with 90s <laughs> Yeah, when, when there's comics. eight million of something, it, it's not really ever going to become mm-hmm. scarce unless there mm-hmm. is a holocaust of some when, kind. <laughs> when, when everybody who wants it has five copies of it, you know, you do the math, you know. <laughs> and it's funny, the, the singer in my band, uh, Johnny Bueno, who you, does the comic bag segment on this show when we mm-hmm. do our normal format, um, He's he he's he does band practice over Skype. He listens in over Skype, and and she was off in Chicago, near Chicago somewhere, and she went to you know an antique shop, and I found a bunch of, and she always buys him a bunch of comics, and they're invariably like you know the sub scrap from the twenty five <laughs> cent bin nine and. And, you know, she's holding them up to the camera, and it's that, like, I'm giving you a gift and waiting for the reaction, and Jack's going, oh, hey. That's. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, great cover art on that one, you know. and Good find. That's a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll bag and board them as soon as, as, soon as I get them. <laughs> Cut to him using his <laughs> toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The grill goes up. It's like these comics. <laughs> these comics start this uh, charcoal better than that lighter fluid. Well, it's it's the foil and the cover. You see, it's <laughs> highly flammable. And those holograms. You don't want to get those near an open flame. Well, I was just gonna say this burger's <laughs> making me hallucinate. What's going on? Oh, we're cooking it with hologram covers, man. <laughs> Maybe I should have warned you. You look at the burger and it, and you, you twist it, and it's got you see all different kinds of cheeses instead of just the white American. Yeah, it you you can't even pull this burger apart. It just it's yeah, it, it's projecting upwards in rainbow colors. Somebody all right, the acid in the Kool Aid. <laughs> uh, oh, anyway. Derailed five minutes in. Perfect. Yeah. So, so anyway, we're we're talking about Brat Pack, and mm-hmm. this and all this we were talking about is definitely the background that spawned yeah. this comic for sure. Very and, much. And so. Uh, so I was I was thinking of writing a whole like you know blow by blow of the story, but then I figured well you know we it, it would be more fun for us to pick over those details. So I'm gonna just sort of give a a short little synopsis of what's going on in the it's a five issue run and uh and then at the end i'll just sort of run through the the superhero characters and 
I figured that would be a good starting point, like yeah. talking about the superhero characters and their real comic analogs. Okay, so so Slumberg, this is set in Slumberg, a, a city in chaos, since uh, the real superhero, True Man, has disappeared after his defeat at the hands of Dr. Blasphemy, uh, a villain in, in a bondage mask with a tongue that spits out acid. So this happened nine years before, and, and in the interim, a group of costume vigilantes sort of take over to fight crime and, and keep the city in order uh, after True Man's absence, which they seem to have done almost too well. You know, they've, they've got this city under a sort of death grip. So um, all the vigilantes each have their own teen, you know, sidekick, and uh, this group of sidekicks has been nicknamed in the press uh, the Brat Pack. And uh, in the beginning of the series, we see the Brat Pack get blown up by Dr. Blasphemy. And uh, now the heroes have to find new kid sidekicks because they're all franchised. And, uh, you know, so they need, they need new ones. So we meet Father Dunn, who's an alcoholic priest who's somehow tied into all of this and, and responsible for recruiting Brat Pack members. And uh, at St. Bingham's Church, which is called St. Bingo's all the way through and and uh, so what are the sordid secrets of these superheroes and their sleazy sidekicks? Yes, I finally get to do some alliteration. Yay! So listen and find out. So we've got this this group of four superheroes. They all they pretty much hate each other. They're, they're independent of each other, but sometimes they fight together. And you've got uh, the Midnight Mink and his sidekick, Chippy. King Rad and his sidekick, Wild Boy. Judge Jury and, and his his guy Kid Vicious and Moon Mistress with Luna and uh, these guys are just are the most awesome outrageous caricatures of of most uh, I, they're, they're pretty much DC yeah. heroes because I think Rick Veitch was at this point I know Rick Veitch was very pissed off at DC oh, God, so, yes. <laughs> so he has a bit of a go you know the Midnight Mink is is like Liberace, Adam West, and the Adam West Batman combined. He's just, he's, you know, there's no, anything that was subtext in these comics is now on the surface. And so he's just flamboyantly, every line, every line of dialogue is, you know, double on Every bit of body language. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He literally prances and minces through every frame. And he has like this, furry mink <laughs> cape with little minks hanging off it and one over his oh my god and I imagine in color it would be like pink probably yeah it would be like a garish pink not yeah. like a hot pink or anything like that but kind of just something that would just kind of hurt your eyes if you <laughs> stared at it too much yeah. <laughs> and uh Chippy's outfit is a bondage gear mm-hmm. done like as a the bondage Robin outfit <laughs> And uh, you know, at the at the beginning, you know, we, it's pretty much spelled out when the the old Chippy comes in to sort of confront the priest who who recruited him. That the, the the mink has been pretty much having his his filthy way with him, yeah, for for a while. And uh, then you've got King Rad, who you were saying before this is just obviously Green Arrow. Oh shit! He's the rich guy with a bunch of toys and no sense of responsibility. He, you know, he's everything the 
Oliver Queen of the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Hard Traveling Heroes, Green Arrow mm-hmm. could have been if he just became a complete scumbag. Yeah, he's drinking, he's smoking crack, and uh, well, his sidekick smoking crack. By the you know, the first sidekick you see is is going after it. Marocks, Marocks. <laughs> I liked his outfit better than the second kid. Uh, um, yes. Oh God, why can't I remember his kid? Side? Vicious. Kid Vicious. I like the first one better than the second one. I don't know why. It just looks a little. Oh, you mean King Rat? Oh no, it's uh, Wild Boy. Yeah, Sorry. Wild Boy's kid outfit Vicious in the beginning is is a little better than the one that would. It seems like it's different later in the story. Yeah. Maybe it's just because it, he's got black hair instead of blonde. Maybe that's the difference in my head. Is, yeah. And then you got Judge Jury. Now, is he supposed to be um, the the Punisher? Well, the Punisher is Marvel, right? Um, or is he supposed to be... Uh, was um, It was Vigilante who is DC. But he's yeah, sort but, of not like them. No, he's... <sighs> Judge Jury's the, the, the one that's hardest to nail down simply because... Of his rhetoric and his, yeah. his ideals. Well, he's he, a right-wing, Christian, super judgmental, racist, you know, stereotype. He's almost like the Guardian, who was a Golden Age character uh, that, that hung around with the Newsboy Legion. Mainly because the Guardian was a cop on the beat that got his ass kicked, so he put it on a costume to kick ass right back. And became like the protector of his neighborhood, and they reveal in the in the flashbacks that this guy's a cop. So it, it's really he's the one that you can't go A is A. Yeah, yeah. It, he's he's got like a little Judge Dread in him, you know. Uh, his, little Punisher, a little uh, little Captain America gone horribly horribly, horribly wrong. wrong. <laughs> yeah, like the anti cat. Because basically he's in a judge outfit, but it looks more like uh, a combination of a judge's outfit and a black KKK robe. Yeah. And he's got a big gavel that with the words guilty printed backwards, which he, you know, stamps on his his victims. <laughs> and, yeah, and he's he's just – he's presented as like the survivalist, you know, you know, closet um, – closet um, – Racist, well, not really closet racist. Yeah, I was about yeah, to say <laughs> just racist and homophobic and super, super, super right wing. You know, just there, judge- there's, a, there's a right way to this world, and one day everything's going to be okay as long as we can just. And it's basically he's one of these people that uses that as an excuse to abuse people and make himself feel better about R- himself. Right. And uh, so. and his sidekick, Kid Vicious, you know, he he, it's it reminds me totally of that Stephen King story, App Pupil. Oh yeah, no <laughs> he, he finds shit. A, he's a little rich kid who's sort of spoiled and uptight, and but he's really into Nazi regalia, and he's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, just and yeah, and he finds himself fascinated with with Nazi gear and stuff like that. So that's his perfect. And, you know, immediately when he gets a hold of this kid, you know, to his trainee, he starts berating him and breaking him down and putting Beating him through him. The, mo- yeah, the most vicious sort of parody of basic training, you know, calling him puke, come on, puke, you know, and, and, um, 
get the feeling that Arlie Ermey would do the voice of this character if yeah. there was a Brackback animated film. Oh my god, what a movie that would be. <laughs> yeah, oh I was thinking about that god. while I was reading it. I'm surprised, you know, if the you could pro do it now. by Garth Ennis, Jimmy Palmiotti, and, uh, and Amanda Connor, which is about this prostitute that gets superpowers. Um, <laughs> if that can get an animated piece... I'm surprised this hasn't, especially in this day and age of, like, kick-ass and everything like that. Right, right. And while there was Stripperella and stuff like yeah. that. And and oh, then finally God. we have the Moon Mistress, speaking of Stripperella, who's obviously the Wonder Woman gone horrifyingly wrong. And, and yeah. her sidekick, Luna. I'm... And, yeah, and she's basically, you know, she's a ball-breaker. And that's her thing. It should, Literally. You know, if, yeah, if you fuck around with Moon Mistress, you're going to end up with your sack in her sack, which she carries, you know, hanging around her. Well, I'd, I'd <laughs> argue that ways. you have to mess with her because it seems like she goes and instigates the trouble so that she can do what she yeah. wants to do. So. So, but we'll get into that when we're talking about the specifics of the, of the story. Yeah. Fucking disturb. So, so there's your crew of crew of uh superheroes and you've got sort of uh, you've got true man who's a superhero that is really sort of like you know the ghost in the machine in this story he's really just sort of a, a legend because at some point you know he had gotten into a big confrontation with dr blasphemy been beaten and just left and left you know the uh, vacuum behind so and you've got Father Dunn, that's it. And uh, who's it? who would be another actual character in it? I guess would be the um, King Rad's butler, Fredo. Yeah, Seems the, to be the in... Jarvis Alfred of the piece. Uh-huh. And, um, um, oh, wait, let's not forget the corpse of the chippy that was blown oh, up real yeah. quick in the beginning. That's right. When Which... they're all blown up in the in the beginning, somehow Chippy survives as just a horribly mutilated corpse that eats pigeons. Develops a taste <laughs> I was about for to pigeons. say he loves them pigeons. <laughs> yeah. Every time you see him after that, he's snacking on a pigeon. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, when these comics came out, I I immediately picked them up because I was a huge Rick Veitch freak. It was. I can't remember what comic it was. It, w- it was a um, graphic novel called uh, Heartburst that I got, which was, I think, just collected from maybe Epic Illustrated magazine. And I just loved the story and the artwork. And it was one of those things, you know, he did the story, the artwork, and it was just, it was beautiful. And that got me into Rick Veitch. And so as soon as I saw his name on this, I, I bought it not knowing or caring what was inside it till I got home and once I got all all these comics they must have made their way through about 20 of my friends people were just passing them around and going nuts over one of my friends loved these so much that and these were all people who don't normally read comic books and one guy had his leather jacket professionally painted with the Dr. Blasphemy you know sort of squiggly swearing symbols on the back of his his motorcycle jacket he was so thrilled by this comic epic (laughs) it would it would be even more epic if he got a tattoo of it but that that i think actually if i i i'm not a big tattoo fan but the the brat pack um dr blasphemy symbol would be actually i think a cool tattoo (laughs) 
I um first time I've I heard of this series, I was a very big reader of Comic Scene magazine. Uh-huh. I discovered like the third issue when I was in the sixth grade, and it hit me just when I was starting to read comics. So here was a magazine about comics. And and the weird thing is in looking back on this is I'm surprised I liked it so much because they very rarely covered the comics that I like to read. They were very much, you know, like every once in a while you'd have like a, a an interview with George Perez or something like that about his right. run on Superman. But it, mostly it was like the uh, classics illustrated prestige format books that came out in the early 90s or Faust or something like a weird bit of animation. And I, I had a... I was on a road trip with my grandparents. We were driving in a camper from Atlanta to to El Paso at back, and I had nothing but comics and, and stuff to read. And I was going through the latest issue at that time of, of Comic Scene, and it had an article on Brat Pack with early concept drawings of what the heroes would look like. Very different. I should scan these and send these to you. Oh, I would love to uh, see them, yeah. Yeah, very different from what actually hit the comic book page. But I was just kind of fascinated by it. But it was like, okay, so he's doing comic sidekicks in a dark and grid edge way. And it was that was 1990. It wasn't until 1996 that I read the first issue because Titans had one. And then I found the second issue at this random comic book shop me and a friend stopped at. And for years, until 2003, that was all I had read until they released the trade paperback. And I just eagerly went through this trade because I was like, I got to read this. And it's really funny to consider that because what Rick Veach does in this book is like a lot of the things I hate when people do in comic books. I do too. And you know what the funny thing is, is uh, uh, I think Scott and I were talking about this on a show earlier at some point we were we weren't talking about this particular comic we were talking about the darkifying of of you know comics and uh, yeah. comic book characters and i brought up brat pack and the max immortal because i And turn them into real people, which yeah. I think is the stupidest thing in the world because you can always make a real person character, but an archetype's an archetype. There's a reason you have archetype. That's what superheroes are for. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of the genre. And I I appreciate and understand the need to fuck around with the draw with the genre a bit and and push its envelopes and stuff. But at the same time, there's a reason those archetypes are there, and you you can play with those archetypes too. But they're, they're sort of the, the whole reason that you're doing superheroes is Superman is like the perfect, you know, Uberman archetype. And, and I always took this as this is what happens when you when you when you make your superheroes human, when they become human, they start adapting all the f- faults of humans. And in the end, you know, you know, true man, who's the true archetype is going to come back and just absorb them back up and 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 you know now that they've become so far away from those archetypes that you know 
they need to be purified and redeemed and, and turned back into their pure archetypes rather than real people. But then after reading some stuff that Rick Veitch has written about this, I found out I couldn't be, you know, more completely wrong <laughs> with that. It was that Rick Veitch hated the, the art. He thought the arc, the superhero archetypes were unrealistic. You know, that, that if you had real people that, that were acting within these, you know, boundaries of superheroes, that this is what would happen to him, that it was unrealistic for someone to, you know, a, a character of a superhero was something maybe unrealistic that you didn't want a kid to think about because there really wasn't that pure ideal, you know, person or, or, or whatever, which was, I read that and I was just like, I had to think about it. And, and a lot of times, if I take something different out of the art than the than the artist meant, sometimes I'll stick with that. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes because, I'll take it my way because. Well, well, here's my thing. It, it, you know, in the '80s, I understood it. You know, I understood the need for a certain generation of comic book creators to kind of look at the, the the superhero books that they grew up with and to, as you said, kind of fuck with them a little. Yeah. You know. I like Watchmen as a story. I don't like it as an event. I don't like it as a, a legend, an icon, a big deal. Yeah. I like it as a small little story where it, these heroes are just very different from the other heroes I read about. And I understood Alan Moore's need to kind of do that because that's the story he wanted to tell. And I, you know, and I and I understand why Frank Miller did what he did with Batman because as we have found out Frank Miller is batshit crazy <laughs> so but you know he, he wanted to take him to the ultimate dark end mm -hmm. you know make him the ultimate fascist which I completely disagree with but still it's an acceptable take because Batman is one of those characters that's very elastic you can do just about anything but make him a pedophile yeah, with but a when it, swastika when it, as his symbol. When it when it comes right down to it, he's a vigilante, you know, yeah. and he's more more, you know, I mean, so is Superman to an extent, but Superman is almost an official, you know, has been made almost an official arm of government well, and police forces and the the, the ironic world. thing about that is that the only reason Superman's like that is that in the 40s they wanted to make Superman more like Batman was. <laughs> Find that utterly fascinating. Found that out from a book called uh, "God Batman Unmasked," which some PhD in England got the government to pay for him to write this excellent this thesis. And I'm just like, hell yeah! <laughs> I wish the government would pay me some money to write write about comic books. But you know, you've said that in the past. I've heard you say that it's like him almost, uh, you know, parodying that. But after reading like the introduction to this. Mm -hmm. And reading the interview because I reread the comic scene interview because I because I repurchased yeah. all of those issues years ago. No, he was pretty much doing what everybody else was doing. Yeah, and yeah. I almost want to see it your way because at least then I can kind of see it like, oh, okay, he's making fun of that, but he's not. But he's you see, not. He when was they've pissed. <laughs> yeah, when they've been doing this over the past decade, and it's been like all freaking decade, and Mark Miller. Uh, was like the biggest, you know, like let's let's humanize these characters and let's make them real. And I think the problem with that line of thinking is worse than anything. You're just taking the fun out of it. 
Right. Well, Rick Vage did. He this is this is obviously satire too. I mean, everything yeah. is so caricatured in here, and there's a lot of there's a lot of humor in it. You know, it's yes, it's, yes, it's, there it's, is. It's very, it's very fun, darkly funny. But I mean, you know, I mean, the Midnight Mink is just reading the Midnight Mink's dialogue is hilarious. You know, and and even when. You know, there's a scene where the um, Father Dunn's in the confessional and he opens up the door and all the superheroes are there to confront him. And it's just a rip on the typical comic book scene where they're all they all like introduce themselves by saying something very stereotypically them, you know, so they all have a little little line and it's all just it's all just hilarious. And I also think I like how Rick Veitch approaches stuff better than a lot of those other guys because on the pretentious side he's always sort of approaching it from some weird Jungian unconsciousness <laughs> sort of thing you know the the you know the things that are in people's unconscious and in the mass collective consciousness and he's always very funny he's always you know he always portrays it with you know enough humor so that it's just not, you know, beating you over the head with darkness and piss and vinegar. There's, I mean, this, this, I mean, literally, there's a character that kills people by dripping acid out of his tongue. You know, this is a yeah. piss and vinegar story, but it has enough humor and fun in it to to make it not, you know, just a completely slash your wrists experience at all. Yeah, which a and, lot and of think... the, that stuff is. A lot of that stuff to me, I read it, and it's just like, you know, come on. This at, at this point, I think it's done more to sell comics, be, it, and it's outlived its usefulness. You know, it doesn't have the power that it used to. And it well, well, we also can say that from the position of having read comics for several decades now, yeah. and you know, the people that pick up the authority where. Uh, the Midnighter and Apollo are the Superman, Batman analogs that are also tender lovers and the Captain America figure that they fight rapes Apollo, you know, just to, you know, like show, you know, I got you and the uh-huh. Midnighter rapes him with a giant jackhammer and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, it's just, oh God, it, it, you know, <laughs> About as subtle as a solid right boot to the groin. So. Yeah, with a jackhammer. I mean, so, once jackhammer's involved, you once you hear the word jackhammer, <laughs> subtlety doesn't invo- doesn't come into play anywhere. So I can see somebody who that was their first exposure to that kind of deconstruction uh, of the characters. I can yeah. see them going, "Oh, this is brilliant," but you know, to me, it's just like, "God damn it, are you still fucking doing this? Really? We can't move on. We we really it's it's a generational thing where every 5-10 years, you know, you have a group of creators that are like, "Yeah, this is fun. Let's go out and just have a bunch of fun yeah. creating heroes." It's our and chance. A lot of shit. And then the people that come in right after them are the people, the dregs of the of that. It's like, "Nah, I was fucked up. Let me let me do the most weird shit on this page that I can." And now we've kind of settled into, "Well, we're just going to be mean-spirited all the time," which makes me wonder if this was the fun era, like the last couple of years with Infinite Crisis and Blackest Night, Civil War. If that's the fun period, what is the dark period that's going to follow that? 
<laughs> it's like the only thing you can really do to shock people right now is like the full issue of Lois Lane getting violently gang raped. And, and you know what the thing is, is you're joking about that, but it's not outside the realm, realm of possibility these days. And <laughs> I am not the voice of moral whatever, but it's just, come on. Uh, uh, it's funny when whenever I'm talking to the Spider Cast guys, which is a very funny experience because yes, I know nothing about Spider Man, but it's still fun to listen to them, you know, bitch and moan and gripe. But you know, when when they when they're not bitching and moaning and griping, they'll be you know saying, "Did you read the latest issue?" And they'll be describing what goes on, and every ten seconds, I'm hearing the word rape. <laughs> going, really? Are you guys? And and I'm thinking they're just you know nope. uh, you know they're just you know jerking around and stuff. No, they're actually describe. They're like, no, actually, there's a lot of rape in Spider-Man lately, and it's, it's what? <laughs> Come on! It, it, when, it, it's become the shortcut for shock value. And that would have yeah, and and it, and it's funny because like it back. Back in the 80s, if someone said, yeah, well, you know, back, well, once he passed the turn of the century in the 2000s, Spider-Man gets a lot of rape in it, we would have been like, well, well, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? It would have been it would have been like some, you know, grand exaggeration joke that someone was making, but no, there, there we are. But, uh, but I think the main thing that separates Brat Pack, I almost said from the rest of the pack, but that would have been a bad pun, uh, but I think what separates back Brat Pack from a lot of the other... You know, satires and deconstructions is that it it's actually a really compelling story because he will pack Rick Veach will pack character moments. It's like you'll have like three pages Everywhere. of ludicrous shit and then you'll have a scene, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to take these character by character and kind of go through the, the major beats and all that, but you'll get like three panels of, of a character saying something and you're like, oh my god, this is a real person. Who, yeah. has, who has real thoughts and feelings. And I think that's what sustains me through the story. And I can't wait to tell you the difference between the original ending and the ending in the trade and paper. the ending back, in here. Because it's completely fucking different. <laughs> A lot of the artwork's the same. The intent is completely changed. Yeah, it, it's because he, I, I, I think he didn't intend for this to go any further. And then once he decided he wanted to do like the whole Maximortal story, he had to sort of... Exp- I, I, it also I was reading he was saying he didn't think he really he had he he wanted to have the end end a certain way but when it was done you know and he read it again he said I don't think I really communicated what I wanted to be happening there I don't think it really came across as what was really happening so he yeah he completely I'm, I'm very interested in in how that that was um but um Shit, I forgot where I was where I was going next. But yeah, there's um the psychology of these of these kids, you know. It's mm-hmm. not Oh, it's it's, it's 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 great. It's a combination of like pop psychology of like oh the this guy's super which would be from the comics where they came from, you know, um uh King Rad's kid is sort of a you know, a poor kid from an abusive household who's a, a gutter punk with his skateboard and you know, Luna is a is a spoiled rich girl, but he 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 shades in. Although there's a great, I love the part with um, 
oh what was his name kid vicious before he's kid vicious when he's just you know the 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 rich little aryan kid and yeah. he's he's his father you know his parents are divorced his father's a you know business guy who doesn't really pay attention to him and their asian maid sees that he's upset and invites him home with her so he thinks she's inviting him to her apartment for sex yeah. So he's he's you know he puts a condom on and and they get back to her apartment and he's a, you know he awkwardly tells her uh, well I've got a condom on she's like what you thought that's no I thought you were depressed so I brought you here to hang out with my family and you know and um, talk about philosophy yeah and um, and I just saw and and the and like the look on his face and all the you know is it the awkwardness of the scene and. The look on his face when he realizes the family's there, you know, the poor family's there to to help him. And, and later on in the story, of course, you know, when he's being initiated into judge juries, um, of course, the, the judge jury throws a gold brick into a pile of mud and has a bunch of, um, you know, poor illegal, people. Are, yeah, illegal illegal aliens. Or... Aliens fighting over it in the mud and then sends him down, go get my brick of gold. And... Uh, you know, when he's down there, he, he, there she is, you know, she had, she was looking for her father or something, you know, and she's, it looks like she's impaled on a stick or something, but she's, you know, but her face is out of the water and he's got to leave her behind. Yeah, um, that, that, that's his trial by fire. No, all of them, all of the kids were, were set up, I think, um, as well as, as he could have done it. The, the kid who is the new chippy comes from a like his parents are drug addicts yeah they're old hip they're old hippies who like to smoke pot and he's turned them in before uh to the authorities and 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 when he comes home they're, they're like light the incense light scene. the incense and, and they're just like yeah we're lighting incense because we like the smell we it reminds us of the old days <laughs> and he's and, giving him the stink eye and you know the the girl that becomes luna you're is you're right is just this total spoiled rich brat that you know she breaks up with the guy that she'd been going out with because she knows she's going off to this bible camp which is the the cover for getting these kids to be the new sidekicks after the first one and, and you know what you know, maybe we should talk about those first kids because sure. boy, are those some fucked up individuals oh yeah when we first meet them we meet them at the end of their their um sidekick phase where you know luna's is gorging on food and has had numerous abortions and is you know, throw she's and ma- she's, yeah she's making herself throw up and kid, she's got pimples yeah kid vicious is so uh, not kid vicious uh damn i keep confusing the names of the wild of the, boy no no i am thinking of kid vicious kid vicious is a steroid freak yeah, that you get the feeling it bleeds when he pees, and it's yeah. Just, he's he, you first meet him peeing up against the wall and like and like pissing blood against the wall. And, and uh, uh, shit, why do I keep forgetting their fucking names? Uh, Wild boy, Wild boy is just this completely. He falls down, and and you just get the feeling that he's so high that he just doesn't feel pain at this point. Like he can yeah. sit there and break his own finger and be like, "Ooh, look what that can do!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's very focused on his rocks. Yeah, and rocks, the rocks, and, rocks. and they all just get blown up in quick order, and it's just like Jesus. 
So when you get to the kids that are replacing them and seeing them, and, and he, he frames it so well, he uses the comic page, I think, to the fullest extent that you can, because for for several issues... One, the the top right left hand corner will be Chippy. The bottom left hand corner will be Luna. The top right hand corner will be um, Kid Rad, uh, King Rad, and Wild Boy. And the bottom l- right will be Judge Jury and Kid Vicious. And you kind of see you get the whole story, but you're getting it in these small little blocks. But to me, it all read rather fluid. Oh, yeah. Well, they were doing like it was, you know, it was because they were all in their individual steps of indoctrination so that each hero had their way of indoctrinating and, you know, setting, getting them into their mindset. And they were almost identical steps, but just done in a different way. So that whole format, I mean, Rick Veitch is a great, he plots things out really intricately and then... He packs every page. I mean, you can, you, you know, everything he does bears up to multiple readings because you can find information packed into every frame that refers back to or forward or is a foreshadowing of this or a, another little shading of this character, you know, even just items in the background, you know, all, all add to the characters. You know, everything he throws in the frame is adding to the story and adding to the characters and they're very it's there's not a lot of dialogue in it and it's they're very densely beautifully drawn it's yes it's, it's a right black or... and white book and and you know very nicely nicely shaded and toned that's what i was going to say it's, it's not so much black and white it's grayscale yeah and just seeing these characters because the guy that the kid that becomes chippy really wants to be chippy yeah. He's got nothing else going on in his life. He looks up to this. He's so also when, probably closeted gay. You know, there's weird scenes with him and the girls where they're like, why don't you go make out with the mink? And he's thinking to himself, yeah, maybe I will. <laughs> but, you know, the mink shows up at his house and introduces himself. And this, my favorite page <laughs> is when you have him going, well, what fri- What kind of friends do you like, Cody? You mean girlfriends? Exactly. Well, there's Kimberly, but we've never done anything. Have you ever done anything with anyone? Uh, no, I... And he's got... And the mink just goes, <laughs> oh, Cody, you're too good to be true. And you can't describe it. He's literally... Pra- he's like yes. leaping into the air and prancing and just like, woo, our back arched and like yeah. hands out. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I knew I knew right where you were going too when you, uh, yeah. <laughs> when you and it's just it tells you everything you need to know about the relationship between these two characters in that one panel basically. And then you see where he discovers his parents get killed because I think it's kind of funny that all of their parents mysteriously die. Yeah. And when he's brought to the mink hole, it turns out <laughs> that the midnight mink is this dude named Malcolm that right. that owns that's basically like Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner. Malcolm, Ma- Malcolm Maplethorpe what a great name uh, publisher of Playjoint magazine and you know he's this kid that is being led into this house all these reporters are like really excited to see him he walks in and there's naked chicks everywhere and there's yeah, Malcolm he's led into the house by all these he's picked up in a limo by all these beautiful buxom women who are like hee 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 get in the limo and they're walking him out in front of the 
the press and yeah into the mansion and you, you know you, you when all the press leaves all the women like launch into action and they're still naked by the way but they're like now they got headsets on and clipboards yeah <laughs> and it's just this you know it's just this beautifully humorous scene but then you have the contrast of the spoiled little rich girl one kind of getting felt up by luna uh, by uh moon maiden um you know, it's like, ah, you got a nice tush, but, you know, you're going to need a little more up top. I know a plastic surgeon with that. Yep. And so when you see her go to her new mentor's place, uh, Celine Benno, I don't know what this woman did to herself, but she's she looks I think like she was. I think she was supposed to be a beat up old crack hoe, <laughs> basically. But you know, she's 27. Right. And she's toothless, her tits are sagging, her hair, yeah. you know, she's wearing wigs and her lines all over her face. And literally, she has machinery to load her into her costume and get her all duded up to be Moon Maiden and, you know, the beautiful Moon Maiden. But when you get a look at her on her, and she lives in a slummy apartment, you know, with a mattress on the floor and chain smoking cigarettes and her teeth aren't in. And, you know, her lips are those, like, almost you know puckered and and limp weird old lady cigarette yeah. smoking lips that are like pursed from smoking cigarettes for too long and and she's talking all mush mouth because she has no teeth there come out in here honey and and then and then, you know and then she's moon mating her and then all of a sudden there she is with her big hair and and her and her boobs and everything and and suddenly, you suddenly this... you hear the voice of Wonder Woman from the early Super Friends series <laughs> talking <laughs> with that kind of mannish type of voice. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's just funny because, yeah, she's this totally strident, you know, super Amazon feminist superhero. But in her real life, she's just like sleeping, you know, sleeping. That's the sort of dichotomy with them and and their sidekicks are always very promiscuous and they sleep with all the other guy sidekicks except for judge jury and and chippy and judge jury's guy because judge jury's guy is impotent from steroids steroids well you know his his thing was almost his origin was almost the most sad because yeah just in how he he was just brought in and immediately just physically and emotionally abused and like you said broken down to the point where he had no other choice i mean he's get he gets kicked in the face he puts him in like stocks basically he makes makes, him crawl across broken glass and 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 shovel like coal into a giant fire and it's like so you know he's arrested thank him for it yeah, and then make him thank you for it. But the great thing is, is that he's the only one arrested for the murder of his parents, and only because the guy's a cop, because uh, Judge Jury's secretly a cop, does he get him out of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, Wild Boy, Wild Boy was the most real to me because I could see yeah. that shit happening. I've known people like Wild yeah. Boy actually. You know, they're shiftless. His mom, you know, his, his mom's just this terrible drunk. His you know, dad's nowhere to be seen. His dad actually, in a very nice, subtle thing, is a bum. Yeah. And and that you see him earlier on, and like I think he actually runs into this bum in the alley. Yep. And they have a little exchange, and it's a little, you know, there's a little subtlety to it. And then 
when his mom dies, you know, that you hear the news reporter saying something like, you know, people saw a bum run it, rush into the fire and found him dead by her side, so... Yeah. Well, he's he's talking about how he never wanted kids. I didn't want a goddamn kid. Oh, that's right. You know, you know all that other stuff. So you got all that playing out. And he goes to, like, a, he spray paints shit, and he goes to a porno... It's just like, uh, I'm 18, yeah, yeah, right, and I'm Hugh Hefner. Do you got your five bucks or what? Um, and why did the guy say Hugh Hefner either? He he did say Hugh Hefner, too. Yeah, he why did he said, say Malcolm Maplethorpe? Exactly, that's what he should have said, but it wouldn't... Uh... But no one would have known who Malcolm yeah. Maplethorpe was at, the, at that point in the story. But it's just like, you know, his... To a certain extent, he's, despite becoming a drug addict, he's kind of he's got the most dangerous of the mentors because his mentor doesn't care what happens to him. Right. You know, King Rad just drives around. He's drunk. He makes the kids start drinking. And it's, it's basically like the most irresponsible uncle you could ever have. Yes. Who has you get in the car with him after he's had a few so that they can go get more beer. Yeah. It's just like, here kid, have one. It's like, I don't yeah, want Yeah, that's usually the first time a kid will smoke pot is usually with that uncle. <laughs> So, you know, you see all of them in their training, how they assume their identities. Uh, Luna has this really bizarre kind of techno-organic costume that that forms around her. And then you see them on their first mission. Literally missions. sprayed on, too. Because the mentors quickly decide, okay, we got to have them on a mission, and then we're going to start selling them. You know, they're going to start making appearances and stuff. And their first right. missions are fucking terrible. <laughs> the Moon Woman sets her protege up to be gang raped. Yeah. At a football at a, game. At a game, yeah. And then she cuts off one of the guy's testicles and it disgusts her completely. Disgusts Luna completely. And, and you, got, you get this whole thing. It's just like, oh my God, what a horrible thing to further your own agenda. And, uh, the, the the mink and chippy just basically come across these two criminals in an alleyway and the mink ends up raping one of them uh, or at least it's very much implied that after he killed the other guy that the guy would do whatever the mink wanted him to and chippy can't stand this so he walks away and you mentioned how kid vicious had to basically beat up a bunch of people that aren't white just for <laughs> judge jury's personal yep. amusement yeah he dropped a huge gold brick in the mud and, and <laughs> i love the fact that they travel in a giant flaming cross though that's <laughs> yeah that strikes fear into the criminal's hearts yeah it strikes fear into everybody's hearts when the giant flaming cross flies overhead Jesus. Yeah, there's not much subtlety. There's subtlety here, but the main themes are not subtle. Well, the the interesting thing about when they all cross paths with each other is how they're all still having their separate little things going on with the four characters, but suddenly it's all happening at the same time in the same place. Yeah. And, and, and just just how he plays with that is just fantastic. Yeah, when they all cross paths, you get to see, you get, you, you learn just in a few little lines between them, all the, the, you know, the complex relationships between these heroes, how they all just despise each other. But at the same time, they all need each other and they all explain, they all have a little scene where they have a little behind the scenes chat with their sidekick yeah. and go, well, that's that guy. And, 
you know, he's an asshole because of this, but we need him around because of this, so we just tolerate him. But one day, you know, and they all have their, they all get their little digs in on the, and you hear, you know, the sort of infighting and the takes the superheroes have on the other superheroes, and it's just great. It reminds me of any time where, you know, you meet somebody famous or you meet somebody who's like in an industry and they start dishing out the shit on yes. oh Frank Miller oh yeah he likes squirrels man you know he's squirrel porn he's a squirrel all over fucker. the place yeah you well know, it, I mean uh, great artist and and all that but yeah guys kinky for squirrels I, I think it's disturbing as the midnight mink raping a guy uh, you know what's her name cutting the dude's balls off and and kid vicious having to get that gold bar I, I think the most disturbing image of that whole sequence is kid vicious has to save uh, a bunch of people in a hostage situation and he's he pulls this boy out of an explosion yeah. and he says you did it you saved me from those awful people pulled me right out of an exploding a building and the next panel you realize that the kid is pretty much gone from the waist down he yeah keeps he's going, just the upper torso you're a hero a hero a hero and it's just like oh god yeah, and and I mean, right at the beginning, at the at the beginning, um, um, uh, King Rad just or says, you know, he he immediately is just like, ah, oh, hostages! I hate hostages, you know, and and he, you know, he has he he has hostility more towards the hostage than anybody else because the yes. hostage is just sort of in the way of him blowing away the criminals and yeah, which is all he's really there for, anyways. So. Yeah. <laughs> He's not in this for the the greater good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I mean, it, it, basically, it's it's communicated that immediately, all these, you know, the, I mean, the heroes, the fir- you know, after training them, the first thing they do is disillusion them. You know, yeah. the first, the first look behind the reality of being a superhero and the and the superstardom, ness of it, is that it's not pretty at all. <laughs> They're not nice people. They're not, they 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 don't do nice things, but the you know, the way they're portrayed in the press is is a completely different thing. And and this and the sidekicks are a trademark copyrighted yeah. franchise of all the the heroes. You know they have comic books and and all that. So when when a batch of suit, uh, you know, if if you lose a a sidekick, you got to get another one. You know, it's you just gotta re- recast your chippy. Well, the the first big twist of the story is finding out that the the mink is basically immortal mm-hmm. because the priest tries to blow him away, and he survives. And you get to find out like the backstory of how True Man fits in with all four of the heroes. And with the Midnight Mink, it's the very unsubtle. We had a sexual relationship. Uh, I got injured one night. He cured me, and it, the, and basically his his blood transfusion made me uh, effectively unkillable. And it's just kind of really interesting seeing Clark Kent making out with a guy. Uh, yeah, I, and and it's 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 really funny because he's sort of Clark Kent, but they, he gives him a little Bob Dobbs too because he's got a pipe. Yeah, but it's obviously like he's on vacation with Clark Kent, and you know. And un- uncovers that that true man is actually true man sort of swings both ways, but every everybody has their little you know I mean um, at the at the same time Moon Maiden he has he has sex with Moon Maiden, and um, 
yeah, her after her depressing life is 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 laid bare. Though I love the fact that uh, the mink goes, "What a team we made, the world's finest." Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> oh, uh, fucking subtle at all. <laughs> but it, it's kind of interesting because of all of them, the man that has the most tenuous and not really relationship at all it, it was Judge Jury, who was just inspired by True Man. Right. He wasn't. He didn't have any contact with him at all. It looked like, and and it seems from uh, King Rad's thing is that True Man was something was like a super soldier that yes. his, that his father's company developed almost. Yes. So, well, yeah, because they're all they're all playing with the different aspects of the archetype, and mm-hmm. and Judge Jury is the you know he's the vigilante and he comes. You know, his origin is... Fr- he doesn't work with superheroes and all that, so he really shouldn't have any kind of relationship with him, besides the fact that, you know, he became... felt that he could become a superhero because of the existence of True, True Man, which, you know, I mean, they're all playing on... You know, he's playing on True Man being the, like, the pure archetype of of Superman... And how all these other people have sort of sprung from the idea of su- mm-hmm. the idea or reality of the reality of true man in the case of this story, but um, it's and I I think his analogies are are accurate. You know, it's it's def- <laughs> definitely ugly. I am not in agreement that the you know the Superman archetype is is a bad thing or no. a thing that needs to be disputed or destroyed but no but a lot of people like to take pot shots at it it's something i've had to live with for when you're on top you always get you know (laughs) no one wants to be your friend when you're on top (laughs) it's when you're the outsider (laughs) when you're the wolverine that's when everyone wants to hang out with you (laughs) um but the second twist is that the mink gives chippy a transfusion after i'm assuming they've had sex uh, just because of the way that they're all they're both naked in bed and uh-huh. then Chippy walks out onto the onto the balcony wrapped in the in the mink's cape and cowl for lack of a better term and that's when we find out that the other Chippy that the only reason it survived is that the mink did the same thing to him yeah cuz he's been blown up and at even one point Dr. Blasphemy drips some acid down onto it, like literally like on top of his head and it eats out his brain cavity yeah, so at this point, Chippy's getting even more disillusioned, and then at a at a signing, basically, at some mall somewhere, the guy that got accosted by the mink comes and shoves a crowbar into Chippy's chest. And this is when the rest of the group realizes that there's something very different about Chippy, and we want in on this shit. And that's when, when we get to the the conclusion of the story, is where it just completely diverges from the single issue form to the trade. But the the one thing, the one scene that really will always get me in this is when Luna is sitting there, kind of talking to herself, really, 
uh, uh, you know, she's like, once you know, way back when I still had my cherry and Moon Mistress was teaching me all these tricks about how to use my body to drive men crazy, I asked her about it. I said, what happens when you know if you're, if one of those guys you're teasing, I'm teasing, gets through the costume and it's the wrong time of the month and there's an accident? And she just launches into one of her lectures about how a warrior woman must never let her guard down and how a warrior has no room in in their lives for anyone, man, woman, or child. And basically, while she's sitting there talking, she's unhooking a wire hanger. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. And- I, I mean, Kid Vicious doing crack. Uh, no, I mean, Kid Vicious chewing basically on steroids doesn't bother me. Uh, Wild Boy doing crack doesn't bother me. That bothered the piss out of me. Here's something really interesting is that scene you described with the crowbar is not in the comic books. Oh, really? Oh, At all. Yeah. I was just like, oh, I've never seen that. So I've, I've just been flipping through it. And yeah, it was it was not in the uh, it was not either. It was left out or he added it later to. To to embellish it a little bit. Well, maybe make that clearer. But yeah, it, it wasn't. It, it's not in. The the entire ending is just com- is completely redrawn, in some cases, because in the original ending they all show up at the church. Uh, yeah, very much like the be- the beginning with the with the now they're at the degraded point that the original Brat Pack was, and they're back at the church where the other ones got blown up. Basically, there is a page uh, in the comic where. Um, you see Chippy coming in and giving himself the sign of the cross and uh, Luna laughing about something as everyone's talking and then it cuts to uh, a thing about my rocks. That is completely eliminated and it cuts right to Chippy walking in with uh, Kid Vish's boot on Wild Boy's uh, neck and Luna kind of comes on to Chippy a little bit. But here's the thing. Is that in this, you see them beating him, which happens in the trade. And then you see the casket being wheeled out, and that's in the trade. But in the comic, it is uh, Dr. Blasphemy that kills them. In the trade... Dr. Blasphemy is trying to tell them, no, your mentors are there to kill you. And it's basically the bomb was set by the four heroes. Right, right. Because the secret of the Midnight Mink's immortality was revealed again. And it's just really disturbing. There, There's a scene in the comic right when it blows up. Uh, and in the, in, in, in the comic, when the big explosion happens... You see the the mink in the upper left hand corner going. There she blows with the kids inside. Yeah. And uh, King Rad goes, Fredo. Did you hear that? Saint Bingo's just went ballistic. And what's her name? Uh, the Moon Maiden goes. Those little fools. How many times did we warn them about Doctor Blasphemy? And then you have King, <laughs> Judge Jury going. If they fell for that old trick, they got what they deserve in the trade. Mink goes right up the butthole. King Rad goes, good things we had a backup plan, eh, people? Moon Maiden goes, this group was a little smarter than the last group. And Judge Judge Jury goes, not smart enough, though. 
So yeah, they killed him. Oh yeah, and 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 I sort of figured that out like after the tenth time I read it, but in sort of figured that they were in on it. But I thought that, but the way it's presented here, I thought they probably were in on it with Doctor Blasphemy instead of what was really happening was where they did it and Doctor Blasphemy was actually there to warn them or gloat over them, or, but wasn't really the you know arbiter of their doom like in mm-hmm. the in the in the beginning. Yeah. So it's it's all it's it's definitely very the the ending of it is very confusing. You know, and it's not as confusing for me now because I read the Max Immortal series afterwards, which explains what's going on. But you get really, you know, I mean, True Man shows up, or there's, you know, at at, at the end and and all this. But yeah, I think Rick Veitch realized that he didn't really spell it out, you know, clear enough, or and even if it was something that you were going to get after a while, you weren't really going to get it correctly. I think he just think, I, I think he flubbed that ending and, and decided to go back and either that, or he did this ending and it's like, you know what? No, no, that's not extreme enough. It has to be that the mentors killed them, not the group, the mentors, though. I can see right. them. Being super they would villains. kill them too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, the ending has impact either way, especially when you discover yeah. that Dr. Blasphemy is actually Fredo, King Rad's butler, uh, which was a great little reveal because at first you think that he isn't that character because of the priest. You think it's the priest all the time. You think yeah. that's going to be the twist with Dr. Blasphemy, yeah. And and the funny thing is, is that's a nice little the butler did it joke yeah. <laughs> thrown in too. But it's just... I don't know. I, I maybe because I read it that way the first time. I like the concept that it was that the 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 mentors were in on it, and they were the ones that were ultimately going to kill them, basically because they learned too much. Which yeah. they and, learned too much, and they used them up. You know, yeah. they they got them, and and they're not they're not as strong as them, except for Chippy. And and there's a point where. They say something and they're like, with the new Chippy, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you know, not again, Mink." And he's just like, he was just so sweet, you know. I couldn't help it because they were just like, you know, at that moment they realize, shit. Now the Minks passed on the immortality thing again, and now we have, you know, so Chippy's potentially could, you know, be a superhero like them because he's now, you know, basically invulnerable or, yeah. you know, sort of. He heals can, real good. They heal real good. They still—they're not like Wolverine, though. They end up with uh, ho- horrifying scars and. Oh yeah! In both versions, Chippy just gets beaten worse and worse and worse. Uh, though he doesn't get killed by Doctor Blasphemy, like he does in the in the single issue comic. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen at all. That oh. whole thing where he stays into him is not in the trade paperback. You really got to track yourself down a copy of this trade. I do. I think. I do. Because <laughs> I think well, you'd because... be interested in it. <laughs> and, and 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 it's funny when we were originally going, and I'm very glad actually that you had. I, I you know I know you're not glad, but I'm I'm sort of glad that we ended up. We were going to originally talk about the Max Immortal series here, and I'm sort of glad we didn't because I I'm, I think it's a lot better going into this more in depth than trying to cover. Yeah, that, that and everything too. that happens in Max Immortal. Yeah, and you know, and I think when he did this, 
it was something he planned on, you know, doing as a self-contained thing. And as it went on, he started getting more ideas, and it was successful. And I think he did a lot of that reworking for the trade paperback also, so he could lead it more fluidly into the Maximortal stories that he was going to tell af- after this, you know, that directly involved that character. Well, the, the trade also has an introduction by Neil Gaiman, which is more pretentious than I would take Neil Gaiman to be. Because Neil Gaiman has always struck me as this person. It's, I'm just telling the stories that I want to tell. Yeah. Fuck y'all. But here it's like he goes, shortly before Rick Veitch began Brat Pack, DC Comics ran a telephone vote on whether or not Robin, Batman's kid sidekick at the time, a youngster named Jason Todd, already the second boy to proudly wear the Robin costume, should be killed. And the next issue, Robin died in a bomb blast. Thousands of fans had voted, and they wanted blood. Made the front pages of newspapers in the real world. Immediately after that, the four issues. Immediately after that, the four issues of Batman in which Robin's death trap was set up became instantly collectible. I seem to remember that the book in which the kid in the green underwear bought it was trading for over forty dollars at the height of its craze. If you're worried about the, by this, let me reassure you. The dead Jason Todd was rapidly replaced by another Robin, Tim Drake. Batman, after all, must have his kid's sidekick. The launch of the new Robin was attended by comic store hype, multiple collectible covers, holograms, and the like, and was also much collected. And you know what? He's right, and he's really misrepresenting what happened. Um... Because on one hand, yeah, it was kind of like bloodlust. Everyone voted to kill Jason Todd. But Tim Drake becoming Robin was a process. It wasn't a once and done with much fanfare. They built that story up for over a year, for about a year. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until the second miniseries that they had the hologram covers with the little hologram stickers mm-hmm. on them. Oh, okay. So it wasn't – he's kind of misrepresenting what happened. Right, but, right. And I'm like, really? Okay, that's that's. Well, I mean, that's explicitly parodied. I didn't know that story, but that's explicitly parodied right at the in the beginning. Of yeah, number one. It's uh, there's Doctor Blasphemy calls into a radio show, and he's talking about the Brat Pack, and everybody's calling in, going, "I Kill hate him. the Brat Pack, wipe them out," and and, uh, and so he the, does. And in the next issue, everyone's calling in to call him a scumbag. Yeah, Later yeah, everybody's just like, oh, I can't believe that you killed those wonderful kids, yeah. But uh, the, the host's name is Neil Dennis, and because of that, we have a... We have a he's syndicated. He may, be, he may actually be on one of the sta- stations uh, in your neck of the woods up in New York. Uh, but we have a, a talk show host down here named Neil Bortz, uh, who is called the Talk Master, and... I listen to him every once in a while simply because sometimes he can be entertaining and sometimes uh-huh. I just want to punch him in the face. Yeah. Um, but I now, that. because this dude's name is Neil Dennis, I hear Neil Bortz's voice during that whole narration sequence. Yeah, that probably like works really good. <laughs> vivid in my head. I'm like, if they ever do an animated film, they got to get Neil Bortz to play this guy. But not unlike getting. Rush Limbaugh to be in the first uh, the Blue Harvest special. Yes, he's going to be. Isn't he? He the Rancor. Uh, well, no, he was in Blue he's, Harvest. Uh, he's going to be in the new one. They're oh, doing really the Jedi is? one, and he's going to be the voice of the Rancor. That's great. Which is which is perfect, you know. And and I, you know, I, I I'm not a fan of Rush Limbaugh at all, as far as like his politics. His politics. 
but I do enjoy, you know, the ranting and ravings of crazy people. I mean, look <laughs> at what I'm doing. And so it, 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 it's amusing that Rush Limbaugh is self-aware enough at least to be the right. I, I personally, when I saw Rush, when I saw his name, I thought, oh, they're going to make him job of the hut. You know, that's just a natural thing. But no, he's a rancor. And I'm like, no, that's even that's that's perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. But um, another thing that he writes is, after Rick Veach had plotted Brat Pack, but before he began to draw it, he found himself put in a professional position he found untenable and resigned as the writer of the comic Swamp Thing, leaving DC Comics permanently. The issue was one of blasphemy. He told a story in which Swamp Thing, an earth elemental spirit, encountered Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. While the story itself depicted Christ in a similar manner as many respected, respected quasi-biblical fictions such as The Robe, it was deemed to be po- potentially offensive and was pulled most of the way through the production process. And the story made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I remember that happening. It was on MTV News. I remember them talking about it, and the main I reason... I missed it completely. The main reason was it was the summer of 1989... Where it was 1989, DC was gearing up for the Batman film, and they didn't want anything that could cause any mm. kind of controversy. And wasn't and that it, what, what, would that have been post um, the Last Temptation of Christ? Too, yes, that which, would have been post the Last Temptation yeah. of Christ. Uh, which I don't know if you've ever seen that film. I find that to be one of the most spiritual films about Christ yeah, it's, I have it's, ever it's, seen. It's not. Uh, it's. Yeah, I didn't find that movie scandalous at all, you know. As a matter of fact, it was, you know, the the scenes that people were getting all uptight about were, like, ripped right from the Bible, you know. It was like, yes, Christ was tempted and did have a vision of what would happen if he accepted, you know, the devil's offer. But, he, ne- you know, I mean, in the movie, he didn't, ex- you know, he didn't say, hey, you know, that sounds pretty good. That would have been scandalous, you know. That would have been a misrepresentation or, you know, a, a little offshoot off the, the biblical. But I thought, you know, Scorsese tried really hard to be. Yeah. And just and just because Jesus was in it instantly. Yeah. I think the Catholic Church is also a great PR machine. And I think they they leap on anything like that. And, you know, when Avatar came out, the Catholic Church was denouncing it or denouncing it but they were really just saying eh don't get too caught up with it because you're going to get into some earth worshipping religion you know it wasn't really a, a valid gripe but it got them in the newspaper yeah, you know no shit. And, and they got to grab onto the coattails of the hugest thing that was happening culturally at that second and and I think that's what happens with that so it's kind of sad that even though he would have had you know maybe a, a, a nice Jesus in there that yeah, just because it was Jesus, they didn't want to touch it. You it know? might offend somebody. Pull it, pull it, pull it. And it's just it, like it probably would have been the most innocuous scene ever mm-hmm. of Swamp Thing just talking to Jesus and Jesus probably saying what Jesus says Something in the Jesus Bible. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not like he's going to get in there and and Swamp Thing's going to be like, so Jesus, what do you think about gay people? Well, I think oh, they're great. <laughs> or, yeah, or, yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. Oh, I actually, I am one. You, yeah, didn't just... you know that? You know, it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't see that happen. I mean, you know, I, 
just by the nature of the Swamp Thing comic being so such a big deal then for being so weird that maybe they might have feared it too and you know that and <clears throat> I didn't read and I'm going to I'm, I, I think I actually even have a lot of the Rick Bates Swamp Thing run I'm going to read it now but I was when Alan Moore left I was just like ah you know fuck it <laughs> yeah yeah there goes the juice on this one you know and, and from now on it'll be people trying to keep up with the Alan Moore you know because he started these stories are going to try to keep writing it in this style and it's going to be one of those things where it doesn't ring true I sort of would, was burned when Klaus Jansen took over Daredevil oh yeah after Frank oh, Miller geez. and I was just like oh it's like a third rate version of Frank Miller with not as good writing and art I am not oh. a fan of Jansen's pencils you know he can ink no. Miller all day long yeah. I don't care I he's don't want to see that he's a great inker that's it I, uh, his... well no he's a great inker for Frank Miller because there's an issue where he inked Dan Jurgens in Adventures of Superman and it was just like what the hell am I looking at <laughs> so messed up but just as an artist, he was like this sort of like Frank Millery half, half-assed Frank Miller mixed with, you know, a misrepresentation of Gene Colan and bad. <laughs> what a great description! Bad wow. proportions, you know, like Daredevil flying through the air in a Klaus Jansen comic was just an impossibility, impossibility of limbs, you know. It was just like. Your arms don't bend that those directions in opposite ways, and they're not five feet long either. He drew a two-faced story that was tied into Nightfall for Showcase 93 back when Batman was about to get his back broken, and it looked like shit. <laughs> it's just like, wow, I got Norm Brayfogle, Jim Aparo, and Graham Nolan... You know, three men who are known known far and wide for their slick, you know, almost naturalistic uh, artistic renderings of the human body. And then you got Gene. I'm just going to make a lot of scratchy lines, colon. I mean, not not Gene. uh, Klaus, I'm going to make a lot of scratchy lines, uh, Jansen. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, it's like he almost, it's like he absorbed a little mojo from Frank Miller's huge success. And since he was working so well in concert with him they thought that maybe he might be able to you know be his own little sort of Frank Miller and it was definitely not to not to be a uh, it's funny I got coming in the mail I got it for 45 cents I'm so happy is uh this Marvel Star Wars annual number three sweet which is all which was all well semi-sweet it's all drawn by Klaus Jansen oh well but you got it for 45 cents yes so yes. what was the shipping on that bad boy it wasn't bad it, it, it was like a dollar 25 or something so I got that so I got it for a, under a couple bucks yeah, so I, now I finally have all the annuals but yeah it's and I remember when that came out I was like ooh Klaus Jansen this should be interesting ooh, oh man no Klaus Jansen should not be drawing Darth <laughs> Vader at all not at all. It was wrong. I uh, I was actually in Target the other day, and they had Darth Vader binders. Oh, Three ring man, binders. That takes me back to middle school. Yeah, man. I was about I, to say. I don't know what kind of back to school stuff they had for Star Wars, but they had a crap load oh, now. Oh, they. It, it was on every. It was everything. Everything. I've still got some of my Star Wars... I wish I still had my Star Wars lunchbox, but I I wore that thing to oblivion. Um, 
Yeah, but how did we get on Klaus Jansen? I have no idea. We just we just went oh. down a certain road and we yeah. just 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 oh, tripped it, on it down was that from, way. It was from Jesus. It was from Jesus to Klaus. It's Jesus <laughs> to Jesus Klaus. scandal to Klaus Jansen. Well, they actually. And, uh, speaking of eBay, I, I'm seeing it, it's got a couple. Of, it'll be long gone by the time this thing is. But they actually have the five issues and the Heroica special for ten bucks. Yeah, they're not that expensive on eBay. That and no, and the, and the hero. There's two Heroica super specials, and they're they're worth having. They're very strange. They're they're. I think that that he had was gonna tie a whole bunch of other comics into him that he already had plotted out, and they just never made it. You know, there's there's an introduction to um. You know, you you see frames from Brat Pack and the Max Immortal in it because reality is broken down. It has Fredo and the Max Immortal having this whole weird dreamlike exchange, and its Whoa. time is shattered. And um, there's uh, a point where they're talking about he he's like, well, you just got to read this ki- comic. It's called Kid Max Immortal, and they and he's in S- Sydney Ballas Wallace's office and pulls out the Maximortal comic and opens it up and you see the splash page for Kid Maximortal number one which I imagine Rick Veitch had eventually drawn the splash page to it so those were sort of made I think to link all of them together and he just never got a chance to do them I, 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 get, I imagine he probably could have done them if he wanted to I'm thinking that maybe he got a little cynical fit about it and doesn't want to go back to it. I wish he would. I'd love to see the whole the whole story. It... See, see, I'm, I'm going to approach all that stuff very carefully because I uh, that might be a bridge too far for my weirdness factor. <laughs> like, like this I can take because it's still kind of a straightforward story but sometimes when it gets too weird just because of my story sensibilities and what I want to read about, sometimes I, I just can't. I'll be like, okay, I've completely lost interest in well, that's, everything. That's the thing. <laughs> and those two comics are almost like, they're almost useless now. They would only make sense in the com- context of, a, but they make sense in a little bit of context because you have Brat Pack and Max Immortal, but that's two out of nine series that he had planned. And the rest of them yeah. are all going on in here. So you read these two things... And it's interesting, but it doesn't give you anything. It's just meant it, they were meant to be read after, you know, another forty comics or so were supposed to come out. So it's a really weird, weird little dead end thing that happened. With you know, that, you know, it occurs to me instead of an animated version of the Brat Pack, maybe they should do something like they did with Sin City and the Spirit. And just have completely digitized backgrounds. Yeah, do it, do it, yeah, do it, but in in a nice black and white. Yeah, it would be really. It, it yeah, would I don't want to really see nice. this in color at all. I, I never want to see this in color. <laughs> no, there's. Um, I, I imagine there were. I, I imagine the main reason it wasn't in color was probably financial. But yeah. at the same time, it would have been just too garish and bloody and disgusting in color. I think. Yeah, sort of the, like The Walking Dead is perfect in black and white. Yeah, that there, there's another book I never want to see in color. Um, even though well, I'm very, very... That's going to be the TV me. show. That's going to be the TV show. Well, let's, TV color. is a different medium, though. Yeah. I, I mean, I would have loved if they would have shot it in black and white. 
Yeah, that would have been uh, neat. Because I think it would have been a good artistic touch, but I think the it general viewer would have been like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, I, that would have that would have immediately cut its audience in half. Yeah. At, at, at least, and that's just not going to happen. But uh, I haven't seen anything from the TV show. I'm actually waiting till the first issue co- episode comes on AMC before I, saw, I, I see anything. So I saw the leaked Comic-Con footage from it, and... I, I, it was funny, Scott and I watched it over the internet t- together, you know, we both loaded up and watched it, and we were both just like, ooh, oh, oh, hey, and you know, it was a nice little shot in the arm for, you know, Scott's getting a little nervous about Tron, I can tell that it might not be to his liking, but the the first sniffs of The Walking Dead definitely, definitely look like they completely captured the the whole feel of the comic. Okay, here's the thing about Tron. And 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 take this from somebody who has never seen the film. Okay? Ooh. I've never seen Tron. Oh. Uh at some point I'm going to sit down and watch Tron and I'm probably going to enjoy the shit out of it. But I've never seen it. It's not something I watched as a kid and grew up loving, right? Mm-hmm. But knowing things like that I don't see how doing a juiced-up version of Tron as a sequel, there, there's no excitement there, because you've seen shit like that before in computer-generated imagery. The reason why Tron was awesome, because you've never seen anything like that. Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping they take... Yeah, and, and Tron... Like, there's a lot of jokes in Tron that... I saw Tron actually on a big screen about a month ago with a, a audience of it was a lot of young hipsters I will go see Tron and the the stuff they got reactions out of them the lot, you know and they were all nerdy hipstery guys so they're all computer literate and stuff there were a lot of there's like one scene where he hits his computer and he goes come on you scuzzy data and at the at when that movie came out nobody knew that scuzzy was you know a, a acronym for something in computer but you know it, it immediately brought a whole like you know the whole audience was laughing at that line because they understood that he was using a a computer term and a lot of the computer terms in the mo- used in the movie just at the time seemed like complete gobbledygook made up for a movie but now that you watch them they're part of our general parlance and the whole idea of the world of Tron we understand that now so I'm hoping that they and Lisberger, the guy who wrote and directed, and it was sort of his brainchild in the first place, has been really in the in the works of this. And I'm hoping that he understands that this movie has to be ahead of the curve. Yeah, that that it has to be. Yeah, I mean the computer animation now is so good that this has got to do something a little more with it, you know. And a little, and, and a little further, it has to be a little bit into our future of computers too. You know, it's got to be a good ten years ahead of its time. It's got to so, be like kind of like the last Starfighter was in its day. Yeah, as far yeah. as computer effects are, are concerned. And it's going to be. You see, I think one of the things Scott's worried about is the visual world of Tron has changed into this. You know, has been souped up. But to me, that makes perfect sense because the world of computers has been souped up. So the world of Tron yeah, will be higher resolution now, and it would be, you know, more, you know, the 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 difference between you know having 
you know, your old, my computer's got 64 megabytes of memory in it, you know, it's a monster <laughs> to the point now where, you know, you have the, and the internet and all that. And according to like Jeff and, and, and what really makes me have a lot of hope in it is the inclusion of Jeff Bridges. Because he just won an Oscar, he does. He's not like I'm going to take any role See, I want. But Jeff Bridges is always. I think Jeff Bridges is at a point in his career where he where he's just doing whatever the hell he wants to do. Because yeah. how else were you going to get Jeff Bridges in an Iron Man film where he did a fantastic role? I think Jeff Bridges personally is a very underrated actor. Uh, I think he's an insane one of the great actors out. He's an. It's because he's a natural actor. He's mm-hmm. not an intense actor or anything. He just plays a very good guy, you know, as whether he's a normal guy or a bad, he's, he, he just comes off as a real person almost all the time. And he, and another thing is you don't really see him turn up in too many bad movies. You know, I mean, he's had a few clunkers, none of which come to mind, but I'm sure there's been a few but at the same time, he seems to like look at a movie and go, is this something I would like to do? Is this something I'm interested in? Rather than, hey, is this a role? I'll do it. Yeah. So I'm hoping that with with Tron that he like read the script and said, okay, I see I got something to work here with. You know, This sounds like it would be fun to to do this and it would be something that I could sink my teeth into. He doesn't seem like the kind of actor who would be just like, I'll just do this for some cash and, you know... And I'll go on TV and say, oh, yeah, you know, I read the script and it was It was the it greatest was awesome. thing I ever – it was – what am I supposed to say, Lonnie? Lonnie's my agent. What am I supposed to yeah. say? It was the greatest thing I'd ever read or one of the great – okay, it was the greatest thing I'd ever read. Where's my fucking check? Yeah. <laughs> I think – and the first movie is not it's, – it's not – the storyline is not deep. It's just a chase through the world. You know, you run through the world of Tron. And you get to see it, just enough of it to understand sort of how it works, but it's still mysterious. And I'm hoping that this one is like that too, you know? You're thrown into it, you have to accomplish something, and you accomplish it, and you're out. And you're just like, wow, that was fucked up. And you get glimpses of stuff and and enough to sort of, you know, I hope they don't... I hope it isn't too story-dense, is what I'm hoping. I hope it's like... A fun ride with enough ahead of its timeness that, you know, 10 years from now, people will go like, oh, okay, you know, they were on the right track with this. <laughs> I'm less hopeful for the black hole re. Another movie I've never seen. It's... Well, no, that's not true. I saw it when I was like four. That doesn't uh... count. That yeah. doesn't count because I don't remember a damn thing about it. <laughs> the black hole. I think if you saw it now without having seen it when you were younger, you might not. It. it ah, it could go either way. It's one of the. It's, well, it's I've, just I've a great enough. classic gothic G- Disney movie. But it looks. If you take it as a '50s science fiction movie, it's epic. It's like Forbidden Planet, you know. And it has that look. It has that '50s Disney design to it. But if you look at it as something that was coming out post Star Wars, it's really clunky and well. I try, slow I try and... not to look at films like that, though. I really don't because. Yeah, but it came out then, so there was yeah. everybody was looking at it like that then. Yeah, and it's easy to do that. It's you know, I'm kind of weird because I think one of the best special effects space movies of the '80s was 2010, 
So Yeah, I agree with you there. Because the shit they did in that movie, that looks like fucking space. <laughs> yeah, they they, they 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 took away the abstractness of two thousand and one, but they kept the complete you know, Stanley Kubrick tried to be almost documentary stuff. You know, there was no sound exactly. in space, you know, and the way things move looked, it looked unnatural because in, in sci-fi movies, you're used to sound effects and they, but he did it. He said, what if this was really happening? This is what it would be like. And they continued that with 2010, you know, it, the things that were spectacular were because they were just genuinely spectacular rather than let's create this effect where this happens. It was, well, it's, it's like when they were slingshotting around the, the planet and you saw like the the flaming ship going by the dark side of the planet. I watched it the other day. It looks just as good as anything that's out now. Yeah, yeah. It's because they use their imagination in portraying it, and when you know, I mean, I think right now we're seeing a little revival of practical effects and stuff like that because. People are realizing that that shit looks more realistic sometimes when you when you when you do it. Um, I think Inception was ninety percent practical effects. Well, that's the thing is is that you know, on one hand, I, I, I really kind of get annoyed when I hear people complaining. It's like, oh, you know, these days they just get into a computer and dit dit dit, and there it is on the screen. It's a little more complicated. Than it's a, that. it's, a, it's not an. E- that's the thing is, it's not an easy process, and it's an expensive process too. Sometimes even more expensive than practical effects, but it's in vogue. It's in vogue now, and but, I'm not. I'm not opposed to computer effects if they're done. With if they're enough if imagination. they're pretty seamless, if yeah. they're seamless, it's like. Uh, a, f- a friend of my sister's from high school actually owns a special effects company, and he did uh, like the one movie that I'm uh, that I that I think most people would be familiar with is he did the the effects for Underworld, the first oh, Underworld film. Yeah, and uh, you know I, I respect people that do that, but but at the, and I like it when it looks good, but I'm also a big fan of practical effects. When David Goyer years ago kind of taking it back to a comic book thing. He, he wanted to do a Doctor Strange film, but he wanted to do a Doctor Strange film that was mostly practical effects. And I think that would have been great. Great, yeah. Just, you know, it, when you get into, like, you know, Dormammu, I don't know how you would do Dormammu practically, since he's just a flaming head, basically. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That you would need some good computer animation for but just the tr- you know the the, ma- the the magic aspect of it you know it just looks so much better and i'm a big fan of less is more in that the less you show people the better it will be in their heads right the more imagination is engaged to do it that's why 90 percent of the greatest things happen off screen in movies you know yeah. Um, I just saw the movie Old Boy, which somebody um, recommended to me after hearing that I saw. The, oh, you like e- extreme bloody films? And it was a very violent film. But, you know, and there's a lot of horrible things happening in it. But I noticed about halfway through, and it, and it's squirmy. But I noticed halfway through, you weren't really. It wasn't graphically 
played out, you know, someone got their cut, tongue cut out, it was done off screen in the combination of sound effects and acting and stuff, but you didn't see, you know, and nowadays you would see someone snip it off and it would be like, yeah, ouch, yeah, while you're yeah, watching yeah. it, but that was actually even more intense not seeing it because your mind is putting it together and as your mind puts it together, then you're really feeling it, you know? Well, yeah, because, like, Certain things happen in your head that are more effed up than can ever happen in real life. In real I mean, life, just, yeah. And and that's the great thing of is is if you trust your audience, unless you're yeah. just going for shock value, like hostile, which I've never yes. seen, strikes me as just okay. We're just going to do some fucked up things on the screen, and Host- you're, yeah, you're, you know what what a lot of people call torture porn. Yes. Um, you know, when you're doing doing with that, it, it kind of sucks because I think you're just you're doing something for a reaction, not to engage the audience on any other level. But uh, but yeah. I, I think if you trust your audience and you trust the people seeing the film that are going to get the film, then less is a lot more. You know, it, you know when it's when you engage people's imagination that they want to come back to it. You the, know. It's There's the wor- it's the places that make a world in your imagination when you see it, and it's usually you don't see enough of it in the movie. So then your brain starts putting it together, and you'll go back to that movie to to be put in that frame of mind again. And I think a lot of people don't get that when they make movies. Well, and well they- it's like the Blair Witch Project. The greatest thing about the Blair Witch Project is you never see what's haunting the people. You don't see nothing. Yeah, you just hear little things. You hear reactions. You know, and and a lot of people rip on that movie, but I've watched it multiple times, and they really like. If you take the bits of information that you know when they're interviewing people at the end, at the beginning, and you put them into the story, you start seeing, and and you hear things, and you start hearing things from the story that are sort of playing out in the in yeah, the in the, in the, in the story. In the story. You know, no. there was little kids who disappeared, and at one time you hear like the laughter of little kids, and mm-hmm. and each each encounter with the Blair Witch sort of reflects one of those stories, and it doesn't come off the first. I didn't get it till the like third time I'd watched it and actually read some comics that had, you know, and I started all putting it together, going, they really thought about this a lot more than it seems like. Than yeah, they Oni gave... put out some Blair Witch, yes, those Blair Witch comics. I, I, they were great. I got all those. They're really good. They're yeah, really. So the artwork's a little wonky in some of them. Yes, uh, because they go real like independent style artwork that I think sketchy. does like fucked up shit on purpose. Yeah, it's but, almost like sketchy storybook illustration. But but I remember the first time I saw that film because the hype for that film was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, they really latched onto the internet culture, which was just really emerging as a force. You know, it had been around for a decade by that point, but it was really like people like like it wasn't just the geek down the street on you know with his computer talking to somebody you know like in do, you know like with, in basic just text. You yeah. know, you know, Im, you know, HTML was was you could prevalent. stream video and stuff. Yeah, and the um, the thing about that film when I first saw it was since I live near Atlanta we got one of the preview weeks before yes. it was released nationally right so and it was one theater the Terra off of Cheshire Bridge uh, Road which I like to call Sodom and Gomorrah like, Avenue like an art house 
place. Yeah, it's an, it's an it's art house place. That's same where same thing happened here. Yeah, that's that's where I saw Fargo. It's where I saw Chasing mm -hmm. Amy. It's where I sh saw the David Cronenberg crash, uh, which is a fucked up movie. <laughs> I saw that in my art version yeah. of the art house. I saw it with with Johnny Bueno, who gets really squirmy, you know, at certain parts of like movies. And we were sitting in the audience, and and at the point where the two male leads start making out, oh yeah, and which comes out of nowhere, you yeah, know, nowhere. They're two completely heterosexual characters, and all of a sudden they're making out hot and heavy. And then James Spader like gets on his back, and it's just like, oh god. Yeah, it's just like, what the fuck? And but meanwhile, we started noticing that our, the, our theater was probably three quarters made up of gay men. Who just started go, like laughing and going, whoa, you know, they were just like, whoa, out of nowhere. And at the same time, it was unlike any, you know, I've seen movies where like, oh, the guys are kissing or whatever. But this was, they're going at it hot and heavy. And yeah. my friend, he was just, he, the first thing he did was look at me and he made the sad, sad trombone noise. <laughs> And so I'm cracking up, and meanwhile the audience is just going nuts, and he's like sinking down in the seat, going, "Oh, I don't want to see this." But we got there early, and we still had to stand in line. And that theater was packed. Every single person in that theater wanted to see that movie. Okay, not a sound once the trailers ended. And my friend Eric. Uh, I ended up sitting next to my friend Eric and he was more uncomfortable at me getting uncomfortable. It's like is I was it, giving up. Is this Crash or is this uh, No, Blair this Witch. is Blair Witch. I'm sorry. Okay. Switching back okay, to good. Blair Witch. Just, I, I was thought just, it was, but then yeah. that last line could have been either. <laughs> but, but, but I was just like getting more tense and more uncomfortable and he said that I was <laughs> that I was making him nervous basically. But I was feeding off of everybody else. Yeah. So seeing it like that, and I and I watch it every once in a while, and, and I enjoy the film. The second time I saw that film, but was it's on not second date with my wife, and there's a bunch of frat boys in the freaking audience because it was in wide release, and it was it was just the, the experience was ruined. Yeah, and by that time it was getting out. Like the way it happened, the the way it happened. Well, the, the experience here. during the film was ruined what happened after right. the film was kind of epic so <laughs> oh yeah awesome yeah and and, and now here you are today <laughs> well we got married so there you go <laughs> yeah there you go the Blair Witch is partially responsible you see that what, what they did here was about a while before the movie came out they sent a print of it to the art house but they the art house here gets a shitload of prints they watch all the people that work there. They go and they watch the movie, and then they decide they all vote which movies are gonna bring in because they can only bring in a limited number of movies. So when Blair Witch came in, it came in with no press kit. So you know oh, wow. they, they they loaded it up, and they watched it, and the next day the girl who worked at the popcorn stand there also worked at the restaurant I was at, and she's like, "You've got to see this movie, The Blair Witch Chronicles." I th it's supposedly a documentary and she explained the whole premises of it and I was just like holy shit that's, in, that's fucking intense and like three days later this kid that I work with who was friends with the local movie critic's daughter had secured a screener copy of it which he gave Ooh. to me 
and this was, you know, and I said, this is that Blair Witch movie. And I went home in the afternoon, plunked it in my VCR in my room alone and watched it and was, you know, immediately freaked the fuck out. Yeah. There was one point in it where the character, the Mike character was, was at where he'd thrown like the map in the water yeah. and, and he's like, I threw it in the water and I thought for, and I was watching it and I'm like, that's acting. That seems to be improv to me. So I'm thinking this is fake, but that was the only moment that, and then I was like, well, maybe it would, you know, and so I was, you know, debating in my head whether it was real or not or a stunt or, or what, but it freaked me the fuck out. And, you know, in the ensuing months or month when it came out and was a big deal, when it first came out, the first thing I did was, and, and it was right about this time of year, was I was like, I'm going to the movies and seeing this with a theater load of people who don't know what the fuck's going on. Because I started figuring out what was going on, but at the same time, I saw the movie, then I went to the website and was like, holy shit. And then there was a TV special on it mm-hmm. that, that presented it as a straight-up documentary about... And the, and the sort of the um, gist of the documentary was... These kids' parents were pissed off because the cops didn't investigate this well enough. Yeah, so it was set I as an expose that. against the cops and, like, you know, we want to find, you know, whatever happened in these tapes, whether the kids faked this tape or not, our kids are gone and the cops aren't really doing anything about it. And so that was tied in on it. So everything was sort of pretty tight in the playing it as reality. And I went to see it with a. It was during this street festival we have here, so it was all these young people, and they were all kind of half drunk and 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 going to see the movie, and they were laughing at the beginning at the at the documentary footage and just sort of chuckling and talking amongst themselves. And then about an hour into the movie, you could have heard a pin drop in that theater. And yeah, I love experiences like that yeah. where where you've got yeah. a bunch of people all different come from different backgrounds different sensibilities and suddenly something has brought them together with one single emotion it's a a, yeah and they're and and it's basically shared dreaming it from that point on Uh and depending on the movie for better or worse but after you know the last the last twisty you know shot and the the big ending shot in the movie the girl who was sitting next to me some random girl who was sitting next to me uh, at the end of the aisle burst into tears and went running out of the theater you know in in you know in wow. tears flipping out and i actually found her outside and said listen <laughs> it's not real it's definitely fake trust me the director's out you know it's going to don't worry it's not real and yeah. she's just like Thank you for trying to make me feel better, but I, and I'm like, no, don't worry, it, it'll yeah. be on the news lately. It's a couple they're, years. Okay, yeah, they're couple okay. Couple years later, when I saw Mike on an episode of Law and Order, I'm like, okay, there <laughs> you go. <laughs> that kind of takes me out. So. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that was this that that weird novelty film that was a very good novelty film, but once that initial magic was done it was done yeah you know? and, and, it was you still know, a good movie it was still a solid movie but it was not gonna yeah you're never gonna recapture that first first time you saw it. but but I, I i will say I, I sat on youtube about a year ago and watched the sequel because rachel uh-huh. and i rachel and i used to go to movies all the time i saw it in the movie theater yeah, I mean, and, and, and i'm I did, very and, curious to see what you think 
And it, when I first saw it, I was like, ah, God, that just wasn't as good as the, you know, it, it, it didn't do anything. But when I watched it again, I was like, you know what? This is actually a really smart movie. I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, the filmmaker's very smart. He's a documentarian more than anything else. He's the guy who did, I don't know if you ever saw, it's called Paradise Lost. It was an HBO. There's two parts of it, and it was about these kids who got arrested for... Oh, my God, where you saw that freaking redneck yelling in the middle of the woods, and you get the feeling that he killed you... the kids? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a sequel to it. There's just almost no doubt in a lot of people. I mean, he's crazy. Yeah, one of the kids' fathers... Yeah, it you was, know, it and was in the, as the documentary in the sequel, they actually he is taken down for a lie detector test, you know, because after that movie came out, after that documentary came out, people were like, you know, these kids were I, I, I believe the Damien kid was looking at a death sentence. Yeah. Or, or they were at least in prison for their whole lives. I saw lives. the first one. I didn't know there was a sequel. I've got to turn that shit down. And uh, yeah, we'll talk after the show. And, um, yeah, and, and the, you know, people, there was an outcry. There's, there's whole, like, websites and groups um, dedicated to getting those kids out of jail and getting him in jail. But yeah. that, he, was, he was the director of that, and that, th- those, that documentary was powerful, you know, yeah. powerful about, and, and you live down south. You know how it can be in a small town down there. Mm-hmm. The kids that dress funny. They're the ones that took the blame That's, for the it's, murder. It's my wife. I mean, my wife yeah. was was the goth girl that dressed in black and wore a trench coat, and she graduated in 1999. So right at the end of her high school career, Columbine happened. <laughs> so, uh. yeah, yeah, it's it, it, no. I, I I remember why it was on HBO because when we when I lived with my sister, we had HBO, and it was me. Jane, my friend Eric, her boyfriend, and my friend Eric, and my friend Ryan, and we were all really interested because Ryan and Eric were the dress in black kind of you know outcast type of people. We listened to Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, and you know uh-huh. I'm I'm kind of like a I look straight laced, but I can hang with just you like that anybody. stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's just like I don't have to dress like it. I can just listen to it in my car and be just as happy. But I remember watching that documentary and going that we we all looked at each other basically at the same time and said, "He killed those kids." <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's you can see like that fighting to get out of him, you know. It's it's yeah. like Well, cuz yeah. you know they interviewed the kids and the kids were Normal, probably more normal than the people that were talking shit about him. Yeah, uh, yeah, God. yeah. They were just normal little goofy kids that liked to draw pentagrams on their notebook in high school. I had a, I went to high school with a slew of them, you know, and the, a lot of them grew up to be gym teachers and and you know work at corporate jobs. Um, but yeah, I I went to the theater all excited to see that movie, and everybody I went with just was like well that was a tossed off piece of crap but i was like you know it had some there was some there was some really there was some real creepiness to it and i appreciated that they took a different take on it you know they knew that the they weren't going to be able to pass it off as a um as reality so yeah. they added another layer they added they made it into uh dramatized version of something that actually happened in reality 
So well, it added that layer to it, which I thought was a really good idea to get around that. Well, the thing that gets me about that movie, and, 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 and when I first saw it and when I watched it again, there is a moment where they have the guy who's basically the dude that handles all the cameras. Now he's on a show called Burn Notice on the USA Network, where he's this ex-CIA agent that got burned, as in the CIA... Div- Screwed him over. Yeah, just basically, we don't... You know, they drop you into a city, you have no identity, you have no money. Good luck. And there's a scene where he's talking to a camera, and someone comes by, and he just looks off and says hi and I'm like that is the most uh, that's the most natural I have ever seen anybody act in a movie like this where he's just like really really intent on what he's talking about and someone goes by hey guy, hey what's going on it's just like and that's what I like about that movie and that and he and the director really fucks with time and he does yes. a really good job of showing you what the characters think they saw and then the video footage of what actually happened of what actually happened and what 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 made me realize at first I was like oh this is really stupid but then what made me realize something else is going on in this movie was when they went to the the um the remains of the house from the Blair Witch movie yeah you know on the tour you know the Blair Witch tour and you know, they're just partying there, and all of a sudden, there's what well, isn't it like little pieces of burnt paper falling out of the some, you know, stuff's falling out. Of, all of a sudden, you don't know what the fuck's going on, and you just get this really sinking feeling that something really bad just happened, but nobody's aware of it, you know. And it's just sort of they just sort of play that off in the movie, and then it goes about in its sort of narrative. But that scene really creeped me out and really set like a sense of 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 dread. It was mm-hmm. like something happened here. They lost time here, you know, and it was very you know it was very disorienting, and they were all disoriented. And then it just sort of goes on with the story and and leaves you to sort of forget about that or you know to have it chewing in the back of your mind. And I. I thought it was a better movie than anybody gave it credit for. I don't think it was a masterpiece by any means, but it was a really interesting and well thought out and executed sequel for a movie almost impossible to make a sequel for. Well, the the thing about it is when we when Rachel and I first saw it, our opinion was basically, man, you know, that that wasn't as good and I want to know where the missing 30 minutes of this film are because it seem, feels really weird. And I go, well, no, the, the DVD features, if you play the movie backwards, you find the missing 30 minutes, because that was one of the main plot points, is that they lost that time and then found it on the video. Um, right. We had that redhead dancing around naked. The redhead, by the way, was the daughter of the publisher of Us Weekly, of US Weekly, and she got a really big showcase <laughs> the week yeah. before it came out in that magazine. I'm like, really? Oh, God. <laughs> Her, um, her star-making role. Well, I don't know how to wrap this up out of the Blair Witch Project, but we're hitting about the two-hour mark, and I just wanted to say, Mike, it's been fine tangenting with you. Oh yeah, it's been it's a great time. This is uh, this is this is like every conversation we have when we're not recording. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like the conversation we had for the half hour before we started recording. <laughs> No, but seriously, uh, I do recommend going on eBay if you're 
LCS, as we say on the street. Uh, it doesn't have it. Track it down because it's worth a read. It's worth it. it yeah. If oh, if, yeah. If you're not completely disillusioned with the um, breaking down of the superhero genre and want to see it done in a very intelligent and messed up way. This is, and funny. Yeah, it's, it's like the only person that could really direct this live action is David Cronenberg, in my opinion. Ooh, but uh, that would I would that, that's like <laughs> that's just, that would be just beautiful. <laughs> so, oh my god, I would love that. But yeah. I appreciate but I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, and we're gonna have to um, get back a little later on, uh, and we'll do the the Maxi Mortal. Yeah, when I finally find time to sit down and read it. Well, once you start, once you start, it's a fast read. So I'm sure, and once you get started, it'll it's it's a lot of fun. It's a it's a lot lighter than Brat Pack. It's a lot more. It it's it's almost. It reminds me of. Um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where it it has famous events and characters from different time periods and their interactions with the Maxi Mortal, and some of them are real, like um, Albert Einstein, and some of them are you know characters like Sherlock Holmes. Oh, but, interesting. And uh, and uh, and there's a fake Robert Oppenheimer and a you know, fake Siegel and Schuster, and and it's just it's it's great. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to do that some other time. And, and Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.